I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture, with me, Neil Denny. This week, I'm joined by cultural critic Travis Elborough to talk about his latest book, A Walk in the Park, The Life and Times of a People's Institution. Before we start the show, I just wanted to let you know that Little Atoms will be taking part in the inaugural London Podcast Festival at King's Place in King's Cross on Saturday the 24th of September. I'll be talking to The Guardian's own Hadley Freeman about her fantastic book Life Moves Pretty Fast, which is about the lessons she learned from watching 80s movies. So if you think we don't talk about Dirty Dancing and Ghostbusters enough on Little Atoms, this is the event you've been waiting for. Go to www.kingsplace.co.uk and search for Little Atoms there for tickets. And get in quick, this one's sure to sell out. Travis Elborough is the author of four acclaimed books, The Bus We Loved, A History of the Routemaster Bus, The Long Player Goodbye, which lamented the passing of vinyl, Wish You Were Here, A History of the British Beside the Seaside, and London Bridge in America, which tells the transatlantic story of the sale of the world's largest antique, and which you might remember from a previous Little Atoms. Travis regularly appears on Radio 4 and writes for The Guardian, and his latest book, which we're going to talk about today, is A Walk in the Park, The Life and Times of a People's Institution. Travis, welcome back. Thank you. Why parks, then? What inspired this book? I think part of the inspiration, or part of my interest in parks... I mean, I'm interested in cities, full stop. I'm interested in how places develop and change and morph over time. Um, and I've explored those in, in some of the other books, kind of obliquely. I mean, the Routemaster Bus book, obviously, there's the idea of public transport and how that creates the suburbs and commuting and, and you know, morphs and makes the city form into different shapes. And I think there's been a sense over the last decade or so that slowly the idea of public space versus commercial space has been somewhat more intention yeah um and i just found myself really thinking about parks on those terms i mean i'd actually been inspired by a particular park to write the book i did about vinyl and, and records because i used to for like relief and to escape from my desk would go to my local park which was clissold park in, in stoke newington uh, most days. I know over one particular summer there just seemed to be these two, uh, shall we say, um, gentlemen with a fondness for intoxicating liquids uh, who would always be lurking about in this park, always listening to the same album, the same cassette record. That was a, a spark which had set some thoughts about how we listen to music and the, and the variety of, and range of music that's now available on the internet versus the analogue format. So in a sense I've been thinking about parks for for a while, more as a user perhaps than necessarily someone exploring their histories. And I mean the other I mean when I was starting to to research this book also in tandem there were protests against uh, the plans to redevelop Gezi or Gaze Park in Taksim Square in Turkey into a private shopping mall. And I think that exemplified where the, the, some of the tensions which are facing the contemporary part at this point in, in the 21st century. And that, that idea of the tension between the public and the private is actually where parks start as yeah, well. So we'll, we'll go back to that in a moment, particularly you know, parks in, in Britain, that's, mm. that's, that's where they sort of come from. But even before that, what's the, what would be the first thing that would be recognisable as a park, like anywhere? I mean, the, I mean, the, the word park comes from the Anglo-Norman, the Anglo-French, for an enclosure for the beasts of the chase. Now, obviously, there have been various forms of, of park-type landscapes that existed long before that. Mm-hmm. I mean, the earliest known written or you know, recorded document of a park-type landscape 
at least it, it has accepted appears in the, in the kind of ancient Sumerian tale, the Epic of Gilgamesh, and that creates the idea of. I mean, in this case, it's, again, it's a hunting preserve as a wild beast who uh, is almost the sort of park keeper, but it's the it creates the idea of the sacred garden, the garden which is teeming with wildlife and teeming with animals, largely for the hunting. And it seeds, in a way, the idea of the basis for the, the, it's the Christian concept of the Garden of Eden, and the, you know, which comes from largely the sort of Persian culture and the idea of the, you know, the, the walled garden, this oasis of greenery amid the desert. So there's an idea of, of gardens being sacred spaces... And, you know, and obviously the effort involved in cultivating those grounds is, is tied up in it. So there's an idea of gardens and greenery being slightly godly. So that feeds into the idea of the aristocratic hunting park, which is where, you know, the wealthy can show off their prowess as both warriors, but also as landowners and, you know, and, uh, you know, having teams of gardeners create these beautiful landscapes. And it um, goes without saying that this is not something for everybody. No, exactly. But within, but within the ordinary frame of reference you in britain you have things like the commons which are areas of waste ground that are through tradition and even after the norman conquest are accepted spaces within the landscape where um, people might have small holdings and be able to grow certain crops there for certain times of the year and there are also places where you know festivities you know folk culture you know, the May Day revels and, and, and that ilk happen on them. And they're, in a way, they, they're fitted into the kind of manorial system. You know, there's often areas of waste or common ground, which outside the manor... So outside, you know, there'll be the lord in the manor, and then, you know, there'll be people who rent various plots of land to farm on, and then the desolate ground... Uh, will be left vacant to use as an area of commons. And that could be used for, for hunting too, but often used also for mustering troops. So they, they, these areas of vacant ground serve a purpose within early kind of agrarian society and area, uh, kind of early, what's the word for it, um, feudal society, that's the word well, we're looking for. Well, I was going to yeah. say, because I think now it's come to be believed that the commons were literally like, owned by mm. the people but that's not true somebody owned this land yeah, I mean, and just let people use it precisely i mean it's a, you have what's known as the rights of commons um which means common uses of them but in britain effectively after the norman conquest one of the first acts really that william the conqueror does is, is to effectively to claim all the land for himself and dish it out to those that have been loyal to him I mean, in a sense all land in norman britain is owned by someone but it's just that there are community uses of it that predate those kind of land agreements that are accepted. And, and so there's, there's commonal rights. And, and this stuff, it's agreed and accepted. And it's really only when we move in gradually as time goes on, and particularly once we get to the... 18th century, where you have the kind of the agrarian revolution, and then, and then later the uh, industrial revolution, where you have the Enclosures Act, which means some of those areas of common land are, are snaffled by unscrupulous landlords to turn over for farming and to be productive, and therefore the common uses of them is removed from the population. And by the end of the 19th century, obviously, you have the Industrial Revolution, so you have new forms of labour and new forms of machinery changing the, the nature of farming and changing the nature of how people live and forcing people into essentially much more mechanistic forms of, of work and also moving into the city. So within that process, you get a reduction of free green spaces. I mean, one of the things, you know, you know, the classic line, you know, all this was fields. Yes, I'm sure it was fields, but often it would be fenced off and, and there's no way you'd be allowed into it. <laughs> so, you know, there, how much access to free open land ordinary man in the street or the man in the village had was always curtailed. And it's just really by the time we get to the opening decades of the 19th century that the issue of green space, you know, the access to clean air, the access to clean sanitary spaces starts to become a significant issue and it's particularly pushed forward by the arrival in about 1830 of Asiatic cholera from India initially but via the ships uh, arriving initially in Sunderland and then arriving down in London via uh, sort of coal boats from Sunderland uh, that you know this terrible terrible disease which 
in the language of the period is it may remain in the poor areas but it spreads out to the west end so there's this danger this this disease which is which is no respecter of class and, mm-hmm. and physical space forces people to consider you know new sanitary conditions and, and, and a strand of that is the idea of green space i mean there are people like there's a, a famous gardener and publisher uh, and a huge advocate for public parks in Britain is a man called John Claudius Loudon, um, who's a kind of one-armed gardener and publisher, runs Gardening magazine. Uh, but he's a huge advocate for the creation of public parks in Britain in the 1830s and also responsible, actually, for promoting the idea of sanitary cemeteries on the edges of, of cities. And for London, he promotes the idea of, you know, putting plane trees uh, in the streets to, again, improve the atmosphere and the air of cities. I'm Rachel Cook, and you're listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. We'll come back to the urban parks, and again, the parks, we'll talk about the royal parks, and parks that we would recognise nowadays as parks developing during the sort of Victorian period. But before that, let's just go back to the the aristocratic parks mm. which we've we've seen as the hunting ground. And yeah. then those develop into around big houses, gardens. Yes. And particularly yeah. I want to talk about the formal gardens that that come first, which we would see, you know, nowadays if we go to Versailles or something. Mm-hmm. But I want you to introduce us to these Tell a story. There's a story in this book that's much later, obviously, than those gardens were being laid down. But this story that ends up in a book called An Adventure, written by Mm. two elderly spinsters. Tell us that story. It's great. Well, I mean, this is a case of of two blue stockings who make a visit to Versailles in in the early part of the the 20th century. And they're rambling around, you know, the park, enjoying the park. I mean, again, I mean, Versailles began, to to scroll back a little bit, but Versailles itself began as a hunting grounds. And then sort of King Louis XIV transformed it into his, his... beautiful country estate seat, spending thousands and spending 20 years with the age of the Gardner Lenotte, transforming it into this elaborate landscape with these amazing parterres and these avenues and these astonishing water features. But these particular um, two spinster teachers are visiting Versailles and, you know, and taking in the sights, and, and they make their way to the Petit Trion, which is a, a garden which was Marie Antoinette's favourite garden, and they get lost on one of the paths and they stumble through into this into this sort of verdure and they encounter these ghostly figures, these figures who are wearing costume from the period of, of Marie Antoinette. And they are kind of bemused and confused by these spectacles that they that they come across. Um, seemingly they don't talk they don't talk about it at the time. They only talk about it sometime later. And they kind of compare and contrast what it is they think they've seen and come to the conclusion that they've effectively walked through some sort of weird time hole and have been plunged back uh, into the French court during the, revolu- the revolutionary French period, or just before the revolutionary French period. And they published this book originally anonymously called An Adventure, where they, re- they relate what their experiences and what they've seen. And it's only sometimes later that their identities, and they're, you know, they're academics, you know, they're, they're well-respected figures uh, in the kind of intellectual life of Britain are their identities known and there are various theories about what on earth it was they encountered everything from uh, a, a historical reenactment just the, the what the ground staff were wearing at that time to a gay orgy uh, who knows uh, what exactly what they, what they exactly what it, they had some sort of collective hallucination but the point is in a way that Versailles itself is, is always a, a stage set. It's mm-hmm. always this very odd, unreal space. It's uh, you know has these incredible fountains, which are a marvel of, of you know civil engineering of the period. But they're not advanced enough to allow water to be running the entire time. So when Louis the Fourteenth moves through the garden, 
all the ground staff have to signal one another using the complicated system of flags and whistles that the king is on his way and turn the taps on as he moves along and turn them off as he moves away so you know as he moves past so to create the illusion of a completely flowing water features but what Versailles does really is that it's admired across Europe by all the royal houses and so effectively every royal house at worth their salt wants their own version of Versailles and in Britain Charles II actually hires French gardeners and hires Lenotte for a bit uh, as, on a consultancy basis to create something similar for himself, which is largely St James's and Greenwich parks, which are both modelled after Versailles in, in their own more modest proportions, shall we say. But I think you know, even before that, that, within the Tudor Bethan period, there's... I think what happens in a way is that you get deforestation and also you get a, a reduction of sort of wild beasts and wild forests. So gradually, hunting becomes more ritualised, becomes much more of a sport. And, and you know, the, the, the words in this are, are incredibly telling. You know, game to mean, you know, deer or animals that you hunt and then feeding into the idea of playing games and, and sport. And, and there are, you know, there are tracts that gentlemen of aristocratic birth are supposed to read about the noble art of hunting. In a way, you know, it becomes very ritualised, becomes very formalised. And in tandem with that, so do the gardens the gardens, you know, partly taking inspiration from gardens in the Islamic world, which new transcontinental voyages are opening up to Western science. And actually, you know, geometry and mathematics as a new science in that period feeds into gardening as well. And I think it's telling in a way that one of the things that becomes popular in the Tudor garden and onwards is the maze. So it's this idea of getting lost in, in greenery, which in a way in the forest you would have been able to do, but obviously there are less forests. So it kind of mimics that experience. So, you know, and on the back of that, or moving on from that, in Britain in particular, there's a slight rebellion against the formal <laughs> gardens, which are pr- promoted by the Dutch and the French, and you have the kind of Italian gardens. So they're all, all different, different styles of gardening that influence the type of gardens that are created in, by aristocratic landowners. But this idea of, you know, the pastoral and then later the picturesque mm-hmm. um, the, come The aboard. Capability Brown Garden. Precisely, that, I mean, yeah. if people who have been dragged to stately homes in, yeah. in England when they were children would be much more familiar than the sort of French chateau-style garden. Yeah. These gardens of, like, rolling fields and, and yeah. mature trees, but, again, are as much of a stage set as a exactly. formal garden. Exactly, they're, they're, they're entirely artificial. You know, the ha-ha, this hidden ditch, effectively, which forms a barrier from the landscape, the redirecting of lakes, you know, and, uh, I mean, the picturesque is a more, is a more even more extreme example, actually, and is William Gilpin, who, who's a vicar who, who writes much about, about landscape, who criticises some, some of these naturalesque gardens, you know, claiming that, you know, in effect, they're not good enough. Nature's not good enough to be replicated. So what we should try and aspire to is something which is more like a picture. And if that means, you know, knocking down part of an abbey to make it look more ruined, then all for the good. And he even advocates, you know, moving particular clumps of trees around to create the, the right kind of impression of, of glorious decay. And you have things like the hermitages, you know, and the ruin. And all of those things which are promoted within aristocratic lands. If you read, you know, Jane Austen, particularly Mansfield Park, large parts of that novel are, are given over to discussions about the difficulty of improving your estate. And in Pride and Prejudice, you know, Pemberley is admired for the modesty of its improvements, you know, that they're, they're done in a very tasteful way. So this whole thing about gardening and taste is quite important and and will in a way feed into the kind of landscapes that become public parks because although they're created for different purposes and for a, a civic a municipal purpose some of the the snobbery and some of the patrician ideas about what makes for a good landscape and and a, a landscape which is good for the urban poor will do them good both from you know the greenery having you know fresh air rather than factory smoke and brickwork but also you know a certain pedagogical element the idea that you're going to learn something from these these gardens and and one of the often credited as as the first public park in Britain. It's slightly disputed because there are naturally rivals and is the Arboretum at Derby, which is created at the behest of a, a rather benevolent 
uh, industrialist, a guy called Joseph Strutt, who has mills and creates model factories for his workers in Derby. And he has a, a summer house uh, and garden, and he donates it to the city of Derby to be converted into a public park. And the man he hires to do this is the great promoter of parks through his magazines, or the or most advocate of public parks, which is John Claudius Loudon. And what they, they decide to create is an arboretum. Now, arboretum means in the idea of trees. And essentially, this is because Strutt feels that just an ordinary arrangement of plantings will get, would get boring after a while. So he and Loudon decide on this thing, which is the Arboretum. And what the Arboretum is, and there are earlier examples of this, is a collection of trees. And in this case, it will be a thousand trees laid out across the park. And they will be labelled with their names on. And the idea essentially is that, you know... Like an outdoor museum. Yeah, an outdoor museum, exactly. You know, you move through the park, breathing in the fresh air, but also taking in the knowledge by being able to learn about these trees. So it's edifying in healthful ways, but also has a, you know, a strong educational bent to it. And, and that, that sort of idea of parks being good for you both physically and mentally runs through public parks and in a sense still runs through public parks actually we still have you know nature walks and and tree guides and environmental gardens and you know exercise machines so all of that that stuff still percolates our kind of understanding and our promotion actually of, of public parks hey i'm ryan reynolds at mint mobile we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does they charge you a lot we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Listed to Little Atoms, I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Travis Elborough and we're talking about his book, A Walk in the Park. And Travis, we're heading towards the Victorian era and the development of the, the sort of civic urban park. But there's a crossover, first of all. Let's talk about the royal parks because mm. they obviously develop out of the old style yeah. hunting grounds and eventually become a public park. Yeah. But there's a definite point where they're sort of a cross between the two, isn't there? Definitely. I mean, Charles II opens up St James's to a degree to public uh, you know members of the public are allowed in to, to look at you know the spectacle of the fops wandering through the parks and their finery and you know, and, and that could be seen as a sense of uh, of being admirable for you know the lower orders to see how gentlefolk deport themselves I mean poet Dryden coins the great phrase park time to describe the hours when they're out and about um, but yeah I mean you have things like I mean the most interesting kind of in-between park 
slowly, you know, the royal parks are open for certain percentages of the time to certain percentage of the population, providing they, you know, are appropriately dressed and behave themselves. But it's still quite limited. And one of the parks which of the late 18th century into the early 19th century is obviously Regent's Park. Now, Regent's Park is the deal, in a sense, is, is done under the grounds that it will be a public park. It will be open to the public. But actually, Regent's Park is a bit of a money-making scheme for the Crown. It is designed by John Nash at the behest of the monarch, who also does Regent's Street, and it's built on the back of, of creating luxury housing, in a way, these beautiful crescents. And it occupies land which had been open, to a certain extent, to the public. Marleybone Fields... Um, which again, like the, like other commons, had areas of market gardens on them, and, and where you know members of the public could you know graze their cattle and so on. And all of that stuff, in a way, get, they get sort of booted out to make way for the landscape park that is is Regent's Park, under the proviso that this will eventually be open to the public. As it happens, it remains closed to the public for about fifteen years, under the grounds that we need the trees and the grass to fully mature before the population can be allowed in. While that's happening, in 1833, there is a parliamentary committee that looks into public walks and green spaces in, in Britain, and they advocate the building of, or the laying out of, of, of purpose-built green spaces for our towns and, and cities. And from the 1840s onwards, through various means, some through the magnanimity of landowners, some through local councils, uh, or the first versions of them, start to create uh, sort of public green spaces. Now, the first purpose-built public park in London is Victoria Park in East London in Bow. And this is designed by James Pennethorne, who is a pupil of John Nash. But it's, it's created on land which is paid for by the sale of some royal property, as it happens. Queen, it's an early part of, of Queen Victoria's reign. She's on the throne for only a couple of years. She's a very young monarch. And it comes through a public petition through some gentlemen of Tower Hamlets, including a local MP in shipwright, George Frederick Young, um, and they gather a whole load of, of signatures and petition the Queen for the creation of a, you know, a purpose-built park for the east end of London for the poor to enjoy. And it's created in the 18, early 1840s and open to the public by 1845, not fully completed by that time. But it, it represents an odd one because actually it is initially a royal park but very quickly becomes a civic municipal park looked after by the you know the local authority the metropolitan board of works and then later the london county council so that's a it's an interesting crossover point between it being effectively created in the name of the monarch it's not actually the first victoria park but it's you know it, it's a it's an early public park which bears the imperature of of a royal park but isn't really a royal park in the way that hyde park or green park or St James's Park, or Greenwich Park, or Richmond Park, are you know, royal parks which are slowly opened up for the public from you know for a certain amount of time. I just want to take a little step back in time before we we delve fully into the Victorian era. Another thing, like those parks, and obviously Victoria Park, if we go to now, and Hyde Park and St James's Park, go and visit them today, and they are you know pretty much the same as they would have been at this period of time. We can get a sense of that. Something that we have not anything recognisably like now, just before this time, is the Pleasure Garden. Mm. The idea of the Pleasure Garden. So in Vauxhall, the whole of the South Bank was like sort of devoted to this Pleasure Garden. And the um, the Ranley Gardens, which was a sort of slightly more genteel rival over in Chelsea. So what were these like? They sound just amazing. (laughs) <laughs> well, they, I mean, they, they were private concerns. They were, they're more like a contemporary music festival yeah. or contemporary literary music festival. You know, they are almost uh, the cliche, but, you know, mini Glastonbury's or, uh, or, or that ilk. They, 
they were uh, a hybrid in a way that they were they were initially I mean Vauxhall Gardens itself begins life as this thing called New Spring Gardens down on the South Bank and as that name might imply there was an old Spring Gardens which was in Westminster and that was you know that was a a place where there was a skittle alley and there were some plantings and it was closed down by you know for being too riotous at least twice once by uh, James I and then a bit later on by the Puritans um, so um, and it eventually you know moved south uh, moves to Vauxhall down by the river there and it was visited by you know inevitably it was it was visited by Samuel Pepys but it had you know n- some nice planting but it was a place of entertainment and pleasure so there was you know there would be places where where food and dining and fine dining and drinking would occur there were these things called the dark walks it was famous for its for its amazing illumination essentially there was a man called Jonathan Tyler who took it over in the early 18th century who, who really transformed it into this fabulous fairground almost of entertainment and devoted to the idea of you know of pleasure in, in, in various strands it's not quite the Sodom and Gomorrah on the south bank as it's often painted as partly because it had a dress code and also it, it charged admission so it, w- it wasn't entirely open to the lowest of the lows it was quite middle class but this is middle class in Georgian London, which was obviously a, a more riotous and debauched place than the later Victorian London. So, you know, lots of gloriously risque things did go on. But, it, you know, it was, it, was a, it was more akin to a contemporary music festival. I mean, handle Just with more prostitutes and bear baiting. Yeah, yeah no, no bear baiting. I mean, that's the thing. It was, it was more that... The, it was, I mean, when Tyres took it over, it, he definitely set his stall at the idea it was for the gentry. And it was known as Royal Vauxhall Pleasure Gardens for a time because it did have, um, it was, you know, frequented by, uh, you know, the Prince Regent and, and that ilk. So it could claim the best, of, you know, the quality would, would go there. The society dandies as well as the Covent Garden ladies and that Covent Garden being, you know, the equivalent of Soho today as far as a, a famed area for, you know, ladies of, of the night and gentlemen of the night, shall we say, as well. So, but, it, you know, it had this beautiful structure, the rotunda. I mean, in, in its, um, its final years, I mean, one of the great spectacles that it staged was a, a reenactment of the Battle of Waterloo, employing retired soldiers... With, uh, which was actually watched on one occasion by the Duke of Wellington himself. So it was a, it was a, a place of of great of spectacle and rejoicing and and pleasure. I mean, there's a I mean, you know, it, it shows how long it carried on. It lasted until the middle 1850s before it was finally killed off. And it was actually really killed off by the arrival of the railways and and factories to that area of South London, which meant that the air was much more polluted, but also slightly a Puritan backlash against its its notoriety as a place. Of, of debauch but you know Dickens visits it and writes about it in sketches by Boz he, which is, he visits it in the daytime as a slightly ironic gesture you know, that, you know, because it's famed for only really being enjoyable at, at night and I think it, you know it was a bit pasteboard you know it was, it was a lot of front a lot of show but you know um, Ranelagh you know to the south which also set its stall at being a bit higher class closed before it but it, you know it, it represented this midway point in a way that it was supposed to be slightly educational eye that it had these these spectacles based on historic events it would have you know the latest compositions from the likes of Handel and you know fireworks Mr Green the notorious Mr Green or maybe not so notorious but the uh, pining aeronaut who was a balloonist who seemed to crop up at kind of every occasion he turns up at the opening of London Bridge in 1831 he's at the crowning of William the Fourth all the rest of it he performs you know aeronautical displays in uh, you know in Vauxhall Pleasure Garden so either yeah so it's a, it's an interesting midway point between the you know prime aristocratic playground of Versailles the public park with its uh, you know spectacle of plantings and you know nice physical attributes like pagodas and bridges and, and those things and you know and a contemporary music festival which obviously often lots of contemporary parks are also turned over for. I'm Andy Miller and you're listening to Little Atoms a radio show about ideas and culture. The Victorian Park 
we've already mentioned how a lot of these parts come out of a sort of a civic desire to give the poor better air mm. and we talk about cholera and things. And you've just mentioned the common... We can all still go to parks now where you'll see things like, you know, like pagodas and waterfalls and, and still formal gardens and things. But in the Victorian era, we start to see some common features in parks that are still there to this day. And a lot of these are basically coming out of the empire. Yeah, definitely. I mean, a lot of I mean, a lot of the plants are are gathered that we I mean that we just you know take for granted in in most parks come from some of the expeditions to uh, you know other parts of the New World, both America and Australia. I mean, you know, Botany Bay is nicknamed Botany Bay or named Botany Bay by James Cook on their expedition to Australia in a way of tipping its hat to the to Joseph Banks, you know, the botanists who were on the expedition with him. And it's those types of expeditions which bring back plants to Britain, which are then cultivated in new greenhouses, and greenhouses are kind of radical new form of technology, which then find their way into public parks and gardens. So uh, one of the most popular, or a popular, plant in many Victorian parks and still extant today is, you know, is a, a, plant, you know, a tree called the monkey puzzle. Now, that comes from Chile in South America. There's a, a tree known as, in this country, as the Wellingtonian, which comes from America. Obviously, in America, it's not called a Wellingtonian because Americans don't necessarily really want to have a tree named after a, you know, an Anglo-Irish general, so it's known, its native land, as the Washingtonian. But these particular forms and plants, and many others like them, tell the story of of cross-continental travel at conquest and colonialism, um, and you know the snaffling of species and plants that are brought back to Kew, and you know, and other sort of you know the botanical gardens and cultivated, and and someone who's at the forefront of of cultivating new types of plants, and also um, a big figure in the creation of, of public parks is Joseph Paxton, who creates the, you know, the Crystal Palace for the Great Exhibition, which then ends up down in Sydenham in Crystal Palace Park. But he also creates Birkenhead Park uh, in the Wirral, which is a, a, a kind of hugely significant park on, on, on many levels, not only is it a nice public park, but it also proves to be the inspiration for Central Park in the United States of America, because it's visited uh, in 1850 by a man called Frederick Law Olmsted, who was then just a, a Connecticut come Staten Island farmer, um, or rather, you know, well to do Staten Island farmer. Um, but he visits the Birkenhead Park at the behest of um, a baker, a local baker, and is astounded, but that this, this park there is freely open to the public and, and that nothing similar exists in the United States at that time. We're just staying mm. with the, um, you know, the idea of the of the Victorian park. Yeah, yeah. So the other thing we've been talking mm. about the plants and how the, you know the influence of of, of the empire and, and various expeditions influence what was planted, but also you know every park we go to, you know my local park mm. back in South End, there's a, you know iron railings and gates, there's a bandstand. Yeah. There might yeah. be not in this particular park, but often in parks mm. there are guns. Yeah, all of these things again come from. You talk about one in in Hull that's got yeah. there, like a. A, a fake kind of pass. Exactly. I, I mean, there are these Anglo-imperial you know, military adventures, shall we say, and feats of conquest find their way into the landscape of public parks. I mean, one of the most interesting things is the bandstand. I mean, there are examples which predate this um, of what are known as tents a la Turk, um, there's one in Versailles, for example, um, and the Rotunda in um, Vauxhall Gardens has, has some of the same roots. But, but it's really after the Crimean War when troops in the British Empire encounter examples of Ottoman architecture uh, when they're fighting to support uh, the Ottoman Empire against the Russians with, with the French, that these particular form of domed bandstands find their way into public parks. Uh, along a very similar design. Similarly, refugees from the Crimean War are, you know, are often bits of military hardware which then get installed in public parks as objects of, of decoration. Um, many parks had had guns in them from, you know, cannon from those particular conflicts and other later ones. Not many of them survive because in later conflicts they often get melted down to be turned into munitions. And, you know, the, the ironwork that you see around public parks... I mean, in a way, the ironwork 
of and the railings of parks represent a new sense of openness because prior to that certainly aristocratic parks would have had walls around them so at least with the iron railings you can kind of see through into the parks but you know that particular material you know this this material which is at the backbone of British industrial might, uh, what Jonathan Raymond calls, you know, the, the ra- refers to the railings as, you know, like the, the teeth of the empire, get to encircle so many public parks with their gates and their keys and often, you know, interesting crests and logos and uh, and symbols on them to indicate the grandeur and the worth. It's, I mean, the railings are almost crowns, aren't they, around public parks. They identify them as being these special, slightly superior forms of landscape from the, you know, the hoi polloi and the rough and ready city that might be around it, you know. I mean, I write in the book about the idea it's almost as if they're there to protect the park from the horrors of the city, but also maybe vice versa, to protect the city from the, you know, the, the escaping greenery. Um, so all of, those, all of those things bear the mark of imperial pomp and circumstance. And, and similarly, you know, a lot of the bandstands hold a lot of the first music that it gets played and the first you know, performances which exist within public parks are, are, tend to be kind of military bands. Um, you know, so, they, again, it's filled with a particular form of, of grandeur, but also reinforcing prowess of, uh, you know, of, of British forces and, uh, and so on within the park. I mean, in a way, the other thing is that the word landscape comes from the Dutch for, for a painting, and often the, the early Victorian parks... Um, and even the public ones, you know, often not not a huge lo- a lot of it would actually be accessible to the public. Uh, you know, even the grass themselves would be railed off. So you, you know, we joke about you know keep off the grass signs now. You know, they're, they're they're relatively uncommon today. But in the Victorian Park, that was certainly the case. You know, very few people were allowed to trample their way onto the grass. You'd have to, you know, adhere to the paths. The sports fields as well, they, they emerge slowly. I mean, often it tends to be the more genteel sports which are first allowed in, in public parks. So you, have, you actually have things like archery, you have coins. Cricket is allowed in some public parks, but not all, because it historically it actually had a bit of a history of, to do with gambling. Um, so it's not entirely clean of, of some of that, that smear, but, it, but certainly cricket is an early one that gets brought in. But, but football is a later addition. Victoria Park in East London, for example, football isn't allowed until the 1880s. The football matches have to be played on Hackney Marshes. But gradually, sports um, and those things that get incorporated into the landscape of parks. I mean, oh, there are games are usually... I mean, Birkenhead Park, for example, certainly had some areas donated to sports, but no-one had considered the idea of toilets or people getting thirsty while they're in, 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 in the park. So other things like rather elaborate and grandiose drinking fountains often you know, paid for by public subscription or the generous donation of, of some local bigwig find their way into the parks by the, eight, you know, the 1860s and 70s. So, you know, tea, you know, places where people could have a cup of tea, so cafes and those things find their way into the, into the parks. And really, you know, more parks are built at any other period between Queen Victoria's two jubilees and the start of the First World War. That's the real period when the most public parks Parks are built, and often they're built to celebrate the Jubilee celebrations. And we'll have a statue of Victoria, might be named in her honour, or named in Prince Albert's honour, or it actually called you know, Jubilee Park, or uh, you know, and have some sort of statuary or other physical thing which is about memorialising those particular nationalistic events. And then you obviously have um, memorials to the you know the Boer War, and later obviously the First World War. This is Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. I'm talking to Travis Elbra about his book, A Walk in the Park. And Travis, you've already mentioned Frederick Law Olmsted. 
who's the man that he sort of accidentally visits Birkenhead Park, takes that back as the inspiration for what eventually becomes Central Park. But that's quite a bit later. So tell us the story yeah. of the genesis mm. of Central Park. Freddie Law Armstead is, is a bit of a dilettante, to be honest. He's, he's from a relatively well-connected Connecticut family. He's from New Haven, Connecticut. Uh, and he can kind of trace his family roots back to the kind of the Mayflower, or, or at least some Essex Puritans, to be, to be more exact. So he's he's from an old an old American family, but he go he visits he visits the UK largely to look at agriculture. He is um, an experimental farmer. He has a farm on Staten Island, and he visits it with his brother and a close friend. But he's also a, a sort of dabbling in journalism, and he has a commission to write uh, articles about the state of farming in Britain, which he later then turns into a book, which is called The Walks and Talks of an American Farmer in England. And he arrives in Liverpool, uh, you know, taking that classic journey across the Atlantic, and they check themselves into a temperance hotel in, in Liverpool and are somewhat surprised to find people smoking and drinking, I think, uh, if I recall correctly, uh, in this temperance hotel. They stay the night and then they quickly get a ferry across the Mersey to Birkenhead. Uh, when they arrive in Birkenhead, they're feeling a little peckish, so they pop into a baker's to buy buns. Um, and while they're there, they, you know, they strike up a, a pleasant enough conversation with the local baker about the difference between American and French flour and lots of other subjects beside. And, but uh, along the way, throughout their conversation, the baker says, well, you know, you, before you leave Birkenhead, you, you, you can't go without seeing our new public park. Um, and he actually, they could even offer to look after their knapsacks while they go and have a look at this at this public park. So off they go and they have, they have a look at this public park. And, and Laura Armstead is is really taken aback by this uh, by this public park. Not only does he meet some pleasant maidens vending milk at its entranceway, but it also it's it's in his his words it's like it's fully open to all classes. And he as a, a democratic American feels himself slightly ashamed of his own you know land of the free nation that nothing similar at this time exists in America. And actually in America at that time there's there's some resistance to the idea of parks as landscapes because as John Adams the second president of the United States says that you know they are associated with the old landlording class. But you know, by the 1850s, America is increasingly in becoming urbanised, and particularly in New York, which has become, started to become one of the major cities in the United States. Now, Olmsted returns to the States, goes away and writes his book, but he also writes an article about Birkenhead Park. By this time, there's already a few people in the States, and particularly in New York, one of which is an editor of a newspaper called the New York Evening Post, who's a man called Cullen Bryant. And another man is Andrew Downing, who's a figure kind of comparable in a way to, to John Claudius Loudon. He's a, a publisher, but also a, a landscape, a protest sort of landscape gardener. And he writes several pieces of, you know, arguing for the creation of a park for New York. Unfortunately, Downing is killed in a um, horrific steamboat disaster sort of one of the worst that america had experienced at, at that time so he doesn't get to fulfill that particular ambition of creating a park for new york but in any case the commissioners of the city of new york decide to hold a competition to design a new park for new york or, or the new york park to be exact and among the people who enter it is frederick law Olmsted but also uh, a displaced Englishman, a man called Calvert Vaux, who um, it was a, an employee of, of Downing, who started to make his own name as, as, as a creator of, of private gardens. And these two guys team up and draw up their plan for Central Park, which eventually wins the prize. And so they're given the task of creating uh, Central Park. By this point, any, in any case, Olmsted has actually got a job working for the sort of what will become, uh, you know, the, the, the Central Parks Parks Authority. So he's he's in there already, you know, in the midst of it. Um, but they they essentially get the winning design to create Central Park. I want to bring us back over the Atlantic and a bit further forward in time, and to talk about. These parks in the wars, between the wars, but particularly the Second World War, and what all the parks start to be used for? The wartime uses of, uses of parks probably goes back even further. I mean, a lot of commons and grounds, and even, and even royal parks, 
had military applications and they were often used for mustering of, of troops. And you often see various air, grounds called you know, artillery fields. Um, so there's a, a long history, in a way, of them being used for some kind of military purpose. I mean, the Steen in Brighton, for example, uh, you know, the Prince Regent examines the troop on this kind of open space there. But... In the First World War, but also particularly in the Second World War, parks are turned over for the cultivation of food and vegetables. In the Second World War, there's the famous campaign which is called Dig for Victory, where flower beds are, are dug up and, and things are turned over to grow, you know, root crops and potatoes and, and other things to feed the population. But that actually happens in the First World War as well. Parks are also used for internment camps. Um, for kind of any enemy aliens, but they're also used for military bases where uh, soldiers are, are stationed and, and trained within them. Some of their features are turned over for kind of radar stations, and also their anti-aircraft guns are often installed in in many public parks up and up and down the country to take out aircraft flying over during the Blitz during the Second World War. I mean, also they they also have less wholesome activities, shall we say, though not necessarily perhaps boosting morale in a different way, is that um, the parks, you know, have long had a, a parallel life as as centres where those willing to offer themselves to other people for for pleasure might ply their trade. And somewhat notoriously, the, the girls who worked uh, the beat around the west end of London um, near Hyde Park, or in Hyde Park, uh, were nicknamed the Hyde Park Rangers by the sort of visiting American and Canadian uh, airmen and soldiers. They would use uh, whistles to uh, capture the attention of, uh, of of their trade, and also they they would be able to. I mean, this happens on the street as well. But during the blackouts, apparently, they were able to identify rank by you know by touch, and would apparently adjust the fees that they would charge accordingly, depending on whether they thought they, they you know they could afford to charge more. I'm James Ward, and you're listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. Bringing us right up towards the present day, once we get to like, towards the 1970s and 1980s, lots of these parks that we've been talking about, I mean, perhaps not the royal parks, but certainly the the other civic parks in towns and smaller towns and Birkenhead Park and Victoria Park, they're starting to look a bit run down. I mean, what's what's going on? It's a couple of things. I mean, there are some of it's to do with... Changes in living patterns, changes in lifestyles, which uh, which are unleashed after the Second World War. I mean, there are some, maybe a period we should briefly talk about. I mean, park landscapes and even classic, what we think of as classic parks, you know, with their Victorian bandstands and their pagodas and their statuary and their railings, they do evolve over time. They change quite a bit while also keeping some of the features that we think of as being familiar. In the interwar period, and, and largely on the impetus of, of health and fitness and in response to how sickly and how physically unhealthy and how short often working-class soldiers were versus their upper-class officers, there's a great push in the interwar years that more sports facilities should be built in public parks. And there's a man called Brigadier General Reginald Kentish, who's part of the original kind of interwar British Olympic Committee, but he's responsible for the creation of the National Playing Fields Association, who promote the idea that there should be you know, more space in parks should be given over to physical exercise and sporting activity. So you get new running tracks um, and you get well, a key thing in a way in the interwar years is the creation of the outdoor lidos, you know, these great public swimming pools. And this is all about, you know, a cult of health, physical exercise. So that changes parks in, in the interwar years. And then after the, the Second World War, similarly, you get a shift in, in values, you get a shift in leisure, you get a shift in where people are living. You get greater suburbanisation you get some suburbanisation in the interwar years, but you know that process picks up again because obviously lots of areas in inner cities have been bombed, so people get relocated to new new housing estates and so on. Car ownership is on on the increase. People have their own often have you know for the first time their own houses and their own gardens, and so therefore they're spending less time in in the parks. And moving on into you know into the sixties and seventies. 
what people are doing in their leisure hours are changing. And there's a big promotion in the 60s and into the 70s for sports centres, indoor sports centres over and above, say, the more traditional parks. And then you have shopping becomes a kind of new leisure activity. So the, you know, the Victorian thing of going for a promenade in, in the park might be replaced by you know, a trip to the precinct uh, in your city centre and you know, walk around that instead. I mean, some of those are, you know, some of those have, you know, are beautifully landscaped green spaces. And you know, the new town developments were often very sensitive to having being landscaped and being surrounded by, by green space. But, you know, slowly in a way, the traditional or some of the facets of the Victorian park start to be seen as rather old hat and you know, reminiscent of, a, of an age that's passing. But also society itself is changing. Deference has started to go. So um, one of the, I think one of the most telling examples in, in slightly shifting values in the, after the Second World War is that one of the, the first time that Dennis the Menace appears in the Beano comic, it, you know, he's battling with the job's worth of a park keeper. We you know, whereas the park keeper might have been a figure of, of respect among the local community, though it would still been mocked to a certain extent, but, you know, he, he's much more a figure of, of fun and, and, you know, in the... Uh, in the swing, the swinging sixties, the idea of authority is being questioned. But also and, now, it's a figure from the past. I mean, yeah, you don't have definitely. that sort of park keeper. No, anymore. definitely. I mean, uh, you know, the, the, the park keepers now view themselves actually as very much facilitators of, of the activities in the park, rather than you know, keepers, of, uh, enforcers of the rules. But you know, uh, it's sort of jobs worth with their notebooks ticking people off for walking, you know, for walking on the grass. So that that stuff has changed. But, I mean, if fundamentally what happens in, in the 80s is that... In the 70s and 80s is that parks are starved of of funding and support by local and, and central government. Parks are rather like libraries and non-mandatory services, and but they're particularly hit by deregulisation and privatisation of some of the uh, maintenance services. So they're, they're turned over for tender for profit... And you know, often instead of you know the one local authority looking after all the parks with a, t- a permanent team of gardeners who are dedicated to the upkeep of their parks, it would be a group of itinerant gardeners that move from park to park. And although the theory has been somewhat discredited, and I think actually maybe discredited entirely, but the idea of what would happen was you know a flower bed might be ripped up uh, one day, and it might be then a week or so before the gardening team turned to repair it and so you know other bits in the park would fall into disrepair and so really by the 90s often parks were and you know other broad you know there are a huge a range of other social issues some of which are in parks from the beginning you know, the you know, the thing of homeless sleeping in parks goes back to victorian times so you know george orwell you know when, on his tramping days you know he spends a night kipping in a park so it's not, it's not a new thing but certainly um, the removal of some of the social support networks which had previously been there, coupled with various other things, means that parks fall into a poorer state than, than, they, than they have been. And it's really only into the 1990s when the organisation Demos does a detailed study into parks and finds actually they're still quite well used, they're quite well loved, and actually they are better value for money than sort of outdoor sports centres and, and similar, and used by a wider range of people. And from that, the National Lottery Fund, is, uh, which has just been created, decides to pump money into public parks. And it's really that injection of cash which allows them to be repaired, coupled in a way also with, particularly in, in urban areas, that suddenly the cities start to become repopulated and, and cities become desirable places to, to live rather than areas of you know, urban dereliction and decay that are considered no-go areas. And, and parks themselves, I mean, Central Park in New York becomes, you know, a, a becomes a huge metaphor in a way for the social ills of the city. I mean, the, the joke in Annie Hall where one of the characters said, you know, I did Shakespeare in the park and I got, I got mugged, you know, two guys in leather jackets stole my leotard. You know, that of, you know, this, these parks becoming no-go areas after dark rather than these beautiful, beloved, sylvan spaces. And as you mentioned, you know, there's obviously been an acknowledgement that things needed to change and there was the National Lottery thing and things did look better. Obviously now, you know, with austerity and whatever, it'll be interesting to see where that actually goes. But 
I want to leave that and I want to finish up talking briefly about where we started right back at the beginning in this idea of the tension that's again arisen between the private and the public and you mentioned the idea of park services being sort of outsourced to like private companies and things but but the actual privatization of space of public spaces is a thing that we've talked about a few times on on this show and regular listeners will be very familiar with my antipathy towards the uh, ridiculous garden bridge project mm. this is a thing that seems to be happening more and more now the idea of like a, an ostensibly public space being owned and managed and policed mm. by companies yeah i mean uh, there's been certainly over over the last decade we have seen the increasing intrusion, perhaps that's the fairest way of, of putting it, of the private into public parks. And this has come about certainly, or certainly much more over the last few years as a result of the government's austerity measures, uh, which has meant that councils looking to save money on their budgets um, have chosen to scrimp on spending the, the donating to parks. I mean, some of them have, you know, have been incredibly inventive in how they, how they've tried to over, overcome those things. So, and there, you know, there are clearly many needs that local councils and local government needs to fund. But you know, one way that many local authorities have looked to make up the shortfall in the park budget is to look towards commercial enterprise. So, to that end, often renting the park out to a private company to run a ticketed festival event, for example. Um, and there are several examples of those across the country. And obviously that raises money for the park, which can then be refunneled into um, you know, vital repairs, maintenance, and, you know, and some of the fun things that it itself wants to put on for events and the gardens it wants to create and you know, the educational work it, it wants and needs to do. But obviously when those festivals are on, areas of the park are, aren't open to it. There are costs as far as, far as repair and maintenance after that work is after those festivals and those things have, have gone on but I think a more invidious strand has been the handing over of, of certain assets within the park to private companies to then run on a for-profit basis I mean one of the most contentious issues of this happened within the last 18 months which is that um, in Battersea Park a rather admittedly run down but still free at the point of use adventure playground was leased to a company called Go Ape. Nothing against that particular company. I'm not. I'm not. That's for the local authority and local council to agree. Who were then? Who then? You know, obviously repaired and created a new adventure playground on that site. But to use that, you know, you will have to to spend money. Uh, you know, and take have a ticket and so on. So effectively it creates a private business within a public space. Now that may be fine, you know, in the sense that it provides money and income for the park. And of course that formula happens all over in public parks. It happens with, you know, many of uh, the facilities in public parks, particularly cafes. But it does transform the relationship to particular areas of the park. And another example of this is in West London, in, in Shepherd's Bush, in a park called Hammersmith Park, which is roughly opposite the old television centre building, where there Hammersmith and Fulham Council wanted to lease pretty much half the park to another private firm called Play Football, where they would convert some of the, the sports fields in there, again, into play-to-pay football fields. This met fierce resistance from some of the local residents, uh, led in particular by the writer... Uh, and columnist and uh, agony aunt Virginia Ironside, and they managed to get the council and play football to reduce the, the scheme within in, in the park to around a quarter, I think was the, the percentage eventually they, they now occupy. But even so, that now means that a percentage of that of that park is run by an outside company for profit. Though of course, uh, you know some of that money obviously feeds its way back into the park and into the local council. But, you know, it means that ever more areas of which were run for the civic good and now have a much more kind of dual reality. They may be providing income for the municipality or the civic good, but they are run along private lines and, they're, and therefore only accessible for those willing to pay a fee. Of course, you know, many public parks 
run by the local municipality are equally only accessible through that form. But it's still part of more general trend. I mean, more worrying still are the case, certainly in Liverpool, Sefton Park, for example, where there are plans to sell a section of that park to a property developer. And we are seeing some more examples of that up and down the, the country where areas of public space are in tandem with kind of new developments, you know, or some of the maintenance of them are tied to such schemes. And that, again, has a historic precedent. Both Regent's Park and Victoria Park were funded, in a way, by the creation of, pri- of, of you know, private residential properties. So, again, it's not, it's not so outrageous that it's happening, but I think it does create some anxiety, I think, among public accountability in some of these spaces for local residents and how much, how democratically accountable those parks are to them once they're in the hands of, uh, you know, and have been leased, perhaps on kind of long term, to private companies to run and maintain. That's where we'll have to leave it. So I've been talking to Travis Elbro. We've been talking about his book, A Walk in the Park, The Life and Times of a People's Institution, which is out now from Jonathan Cape. So, Travis, thank you so much for coming in and sharing it. A pleasure. You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. You can find the Little Atoms podcast on iTunes and you can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. If you'd like to donate a little money to support the show, you can do so at littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.